things that are tiny in the grand scale feel like they're huge things. Huge things feel like they're even huger things. And then all of a sudden, you lose a friend. And it comes out of nowhere. And then, boom, you are forced to grapple with it. Hello, No Script listeners. Welcome back to an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. And we are here. We are two weeks out of Miller Month now. We're excited to be back to a different vein of plays. Miller Month was a lot of fun, but Circle Mirror Transformation last week was great. And this week, we are talking about a very different play than the Arthur Miller plays and very different from Circle Mirror Transformation in a lot of ways. But interestingly, I think that there are some similarities too. And, And this might be worth kind of looking back at Circle Mirror and the repetitive action in that play. I don't know. That could be interesting for this one, too. After all that, now that we've teased the sorts of things we'll talk about, (laughs) this is an episode about Sarah DeLapp's play, the very popular, up-and-coming, very famous play, The Wolves. Yeah, yeah, the wolves. It's it was done. I, I the first time I heard about this play, it was because the Guthrie, I believe, was doing it in Minnesota, and I'm connected to Minnesota, so I heard about it there and saw a bunch of great reviews from it. Um, but it, it's had a it's had a vibrant life beyond that, before and after as well. So I'm very excited to get to talk about it. Uh, before we jump into this, we did want to take a second and just point you all over towards Patreon. We got some cool stuff going on over there. Thank you to everyone who is already a patron over there. And uh, if if you have been along time listener of the show and uh or are a new time listener and like what you're hearing uh and you want to support us at all you can head over to patreon.com this podcast is not free to make we we make it out of love and we love having these conversations and extending the conversations to all of you but there are some costs associated with it so if you want to help out you can go over to patreon and for as little as one dollar you can join and become a patron you'll get access to patron only posts over there at the one dollar level the next level I think is a five dollar level and uh, we'll like say your name as producer credit on the show so uh, yeah if you have a second go over and check us out over on patreon.com slash no script podcast and uh, yeah we'll see you over there That would be super great for you to help us out and continue the work that we're doing. And like Jackson said, $1 a month, $1 a month. That's what it takes for you to support the work of NoScript. We hope that you'll go over there. Back to the Wolves. This is a 2016 play, one of the more recent plays that really has existed throughout our now season and a half of No Script. This is going to be in the top, I would guess, the top five most recently written plays, if it's not just straight up number two. Um, Sweat was written about the same time, and we're actually going to talk about Sweat here in a minute as I give more context, but off the top of my head, without going through all of our plays, the band's visit is pretty new. Um, Hamilton is new, but older than this. So, I I mean, it's going to be in that group of more recent plays. And like I teased at the beginning, this play is sweeping the nation. Jackson heard about it because it was playing at the Guthrie. It played at the Goodman in Chicago. It started at the Duke Street at 42nd uh, Street Theater. It played off-Broadway a little bit. It received the 2017 Obie Award for ensemble work. It was a finalist for the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. 
Oklahoma. Interestingly, it lost that year or, you know, quote, lost. Do you, do you lose if you're a finalist? <laughs> yeah, you it, made it. It did not win the Pulitzer <laughs> Prize for drama because Sweat, the very first play that we did as part of No Script, won mm. that year in 2017 instead of The Wolves. But this was a finalist that year as well. Like I said, the Goodman did it last year, early 2018. The New York Times produced a list of plays that were like the 25 or the 15 or something most uh, like most influential, best new plays since Angels in America. Angels in America, of course, is kind of a turning point in American theater, kind of a linchpin. We look back at that as kind of a moment in American theater. Since then, the New York Times produced this list. Lots of the scripts that we have discussed have been on that list. Scripts like Jesus Hopped the A-Train, How I Learned to Drive, The Laramie Project, Ruined, The Flick, Top Dog, Underdog, plays that we loved. I mean, just looking at that list, I think we absolutely gushed and gushed about yeah. all of those plays. Yep. <laughs> and so The Wolves is included on that list as well. Yeah. So yeah, it is. It is joined very quick, quickly a higher echelon of plays in the, in our modern vernacular. Um, I'm going to uh, real quick summarize as best I can this play. Um, this play is a pretty episodic plot structure. It takes place over six weeks of uh, this team, this soccer team meeting, and uh, and uh, the moments before the games each time. Um, so it takes place over uh, six different games that are played and. Uh, and and includes yeah six weeks. There's there's games involved in in all of them, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, it's during like the stretching warm up time, and it's the conversation between this uh, this team, this team, uh, which is uh, constructed of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine uh, young women who uh, are all. Uh, yeah, like I said, warming up. And each week they kind of have different topics that they're talking about. Um, there is uh, probably one of the biggest dynamics is there's a core group of people who have been playing with each other for years. Um, since yeah, eight they were girls that have been on a soccer team together since they were very young. And throughout the play, they reminisce about the teams that they were on. Like, you know, I, I didn't play soccer, but I played baseball. So it'd be like the Little League T-ball team. They played right. whatever that version is in soccer. Um, yep. They started that young together. Mm -hmm. And then into that group is introduced another character um, who, who kind of we follow her uh, uh, introduction into the group as well as a bunch of other through lines. There's quite a few through lines that we'll try to, to bring up and follow through in this one. Um, the interesting thing that is going to make this conversation unique and reading the play unique is all these characters are are numbered. Um there are very few who ever have their names said. Um, I think there are two that we might wind up eventually finding. I believe that there are two. I believe that there <laughs> yeah. are only two named characters. Yep. But as you do um, when you're on the field and someone's huge number on their jersey is is the designating factor, they refer to each other by their numbers all the time. Um, and, and, and only rarely, really. The captain uses numbers, uh, mm -hmm. like when she's giving soccer assignments. Outside of that, it's very rare that they even use the numbers. They're yeah. they're in that group, you know, in theater, we use the term high context and low context, right? There are relationships that have a lot of 
history, a lot of institutional knowledge about the ways that that relationship has worked, you know, knowledge about each other, uh, familiarity. Those are high context relationships. Low context relationships are strangers. They know less about each other. Those are the two ends of the spectrum, right? So this would be a very high context relationship. And one, one of the features, especially that playwrights like to use, of high context relationships is that you tend to use each other's name less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the banter is much more familiar. You don't really speak each other's names. You just talk at the person. And this this play is is very fast paced. Actually, the pace in general, I think she suggests that it's something. It's it's ridiculously short, like ninety minutes or something like that. <laughs> and the pay, the script is one hundred fifty pages long in my edition. Um, yeah, so, it's about that long in mine too. And this is, should be a moment. I should have said this earlier, really. But um, the other knowledge that I have of the wolves is that I saw the wolves. Yeah. Very recently, the professor. Professional theater where I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas. It's an incredible professional theater for a region like Fayetteville. Theater Squared is what it's called where I live. And I saw their production of The Wolves. They did it in the late winter um, around here in March. And my wife, Brianna, and I went to see it. And uh, we already had had The Wolves on our programming because of its, you know, sweeping the renown. nation. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's renown. It's been all over. So we had it on our programming as something we really wanted to do. But then I saw, oh, I was going to see it. So we put it right here so that uh, my experience of seeing it could somewhat inform because it's such an active play. It's such a lively living play, especially with the deal with soccer and things like that. So that was very interesting. And uh, the reason why I bring this up now is that when I saw it, it did run about 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Very fast paced, back and forth. The second time reading through, I met it, read it much faster. But the first time, we'll get to that in a minute, just kind of the way it's formatted. Um, it, it, it was it was it took me a little longer to kind of read the flow. The two other things I want to do before we jump into that, just real quick to set the scene. This is all indoor on AstroTurf. All of this is uh, in an indoor facility where they're warming up and getting ready to play soccer. So it's all in a very controlled environment. And uh, I do want to just real quick, quick read off some of the traits of these just so that we can, <laughs> you know, have some sort of context yeah, for these so, folks. So the character list and the character names throughout the script, as Jackson has said, are all numbers. So yes. these are some of the descriptions of the numbers, these characters, these young women. Yep. So it gives their positions that they uh, usually play as well. So number 11 plays midfield, brainy, morbid, blood, budding, into, ah, budding elitist, thoughtful, 17. Number 25, defense, captain, classic, ex-coach's daughter, 17. 13 plays midfield. Uh, she's a stoner, older pot dealer brother into her wackiness. She's 16. Uh, 46 is on the bench. 46 is the new character who we will talk about a, a good amount more. Uh, she's awkward, different, just wants to fit in. She is 16. Number two is defense, innocent, unlucky, kind, skinny, 16. Seven is the striker, too cool for school, sarcastic, and uh, we're going to be swearing occasionally in this episode. <laughs> yes, um, the the play is quite foul, especially some of the characters, right? And yep. so the reason why you're about to say this is because in the character <laughs> description for number seven, one of the adjectives is just... It's, it's, yeah, so turn this off if, if your kids are listening right now, or not, don't turn it off, put on your earphones. Um, but yeah, so Sarah, number seven's uh, character description is sarcastic, quote, quote, fuck, thick eyeliner, <laughs> almost 17. <laughs> It's not, she doesn't even like use it like an adjective. It's not even like fucking cool or no, like no, loves it's to like say commas. fuck. It's just yeah. the word fuck as a description. Yep. And, and that describes that. her character that pretty well. Is, I, I love that. That is such great character description. Just yep. to include that one word. That's great. 
Absolutely. Uh, number 14, midfield, seven's insecure sidekick. Definitely think of seven and 14 as going together in this play. There's quite a bit of uh, drama between them. Yeah, they're it's a nice pair. They're, they're best divisible. friends. And I also think that notably, um, I couldn't say this with 100% confidence because it's a little bit hard to track character details even after seeing it. But I'm I'm fairly confident that those two gals are among the only gals that go to the private Christian school in the group. Um, they go to a Catholic school, St. I don't know, Alberta's or something. The, the, the mascot yep. is the Lady Crusaders. So they get made fun of for that a lot. 46, the new girl to the group, is homeschooled. And mm-hmm. I think, I, I think again, not 100% confident, but I'm pretty sure the rest of the girls go to uh, the public school together. And I so, would agree with that. So yeah. they're a pair, the seven and 14 are kind of a pair, a little bit offset because they go to a different school. They're also just very close. They're best, yeah. best friends. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then uh, number eight plays defense. Uh, she Her traits are childlike and determined to stay that way. She is 16. And then zero, who is the goalie. Uh, she's uh, has intense performance anxiety, uh, is a perfectionist, a high achiever, and is 17. Um, there's one other character, but we'll bring her up later. Uh, yeah, so 10 women in all. <laughs> And and many productions, I, I haven't seen every productions list, but many productions, you know, written by a woman for 10 women like to do all women production teams or at the very least directed yeah. by a woman. And, and that was the case over at T2. I don't remember everybody who was on the production team, but it was definitely directed by a woman. And yeah. so, you know, this is one of those plays that's sort of rare in the theater, written Absolutely. only for women by a woman, oftentimes directed by women. It's a real... I, I I don't want to say achievement because that's patronizing, but it you know it, it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's worthy of laud, right? It's it, we, it's celebratory for sure. Um, mm-hmm. The the kind of intense, cool storytelling that's done without men involved. I mean, hallelujah! Yeah, <laughs> 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 hallelujah! Yeah, absolutely. No, it's definitely worthy of laud, and 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 super super cool that uh, that uh, all production teams try to do that as well because it is very rare in theater to find a play of this, especially of this caliber, just because of the realities yeah, of just playwriting. The sexism in the industry. I mean, the, for something like this to really rise to the top of the scripts that are known nationally and internationally is amazing. It's awesome. So uh, here's where I want to start, Jackson. Um, You read the character descriptions, and this is what that has inspired in me. Yeah. Because I think that a potential alternative to the character descriptions that she gives us is something like this. Number 11, the smart one. Number 25, the, the assistant coach or whatever she is, the team captain. Number 13, the funny one. Number 46, the new one. Number two, the innocent one. Number seven, the mean one or the, uh, (laughs) I don't know, the the swearing one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So here's here's the question what I'm interested to start with because I really want to start and one of the things that I really want to talk about is the incredible work on characters that we get in in, in the wolves. So why doesn't that work? Because the girls do have these personalities, and while I, I think that they bust way out of any kind of theatrical stereotype, they do tend to, I think, revolve around some sort of core adjective, let's say. 
Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, so so to start with, it, it's because these are all very multi-dimensional characters. These are not. Uh, these aren't really archetypes. Uh, I don't think they can be summed up in 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 one word. Uh, they, they 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 bounce all over the place. They're 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 young uh, adolescent teenage girls, and they have they're just all over the place throughout this play. And um, so I, so so one, I don't think they can be summed up by. Uh, by by uh, archetype, but then also it kind of gives you a jumping off point as an actor with these characters because, as you mentioned, this is a high context play, and what we do find out about these characters we find out slowly throughout the length of the play. So this right away gives an actor something to bite their teeth into as far as what backstory is and uh, how how to uh, apply themselves to this character well and jump in right from the beginning. At least in, in, in the reading of this play, that's what I got right away is you get a bit of backstory, you can sink your teeth into each of these characters and flip back and forth between the page you're on and the character sheet to figure out who, who this is and why they're talking this way. But what do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you said. I think that the the characters that Sarah DeLapp imagines are incredibly multidimensional. They're, they have so much depth in really not a lot of words. Interestingly, one of the features of the scripts is very, very short lines. There are very few lines that are full sentences. Um, oftentimes, just as we do in conversation, especially uh, young teenagers of, of all genders, they tend to talk, if you spend any time with teenagers, in half sentences. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, my wife and I do a lot of work with teenagers where we live, and, and I, this rings very true to me, the way that she wrote these characters talking. So they don't, they don't provide – there's not a lot of text in terms of – and because there's 10 characters too, right? So even so many pages divided among 10 – there's not a lot of words given to any particular character. And yet, the characters imagined are so rich. And I can't help but wonder if part of the reason why they end up being so rich is that Sarah Delap plays on archetypes. While not leaving the characters confined to archetypes, I think it'd be very hard to argue that there aren't there isn't an archetypal core to the characters as imagined, right? Because there is yeah. a smart one. There is right. a funny one. There is a mean one. There is a new girl. Right. Right? And those are classic theatrical characters and I, I honestly in lots of other media types too. Yeah. And true to social situations as well. I mean, these are types that we fit into. Anyone who has been on team functions know that there are slots available for what you can be within each group. And when one is closed, when there's a captain already, you got to figure out something else to be. And so whether or not you are necessarily that archetype, you put on that archetype to fit in. And a lot of these characters, especially 46, one of her big, um, one, one of her character description traits is that she wants to fit in. So uh, whether or not archetype can define them completely, I agree that they fit into that sometimes out of their own choosing, but sometimes out of out of a necessity as well. Right. They're sort of dual functions in the play. On the, on the audience playwright level, there's this sense where like, okay, so number 13 is the funny one. And we get kind of built into that routine of seeing her be sort of wacky, make off the cuff jokes. But then we get to see her bust out of that in a way that feels very satisfying. For example, at one point, she makes a joke about another of the girl's mothers who dies of cancer. 
And she makes a joke about that, and it crashes and burns, and she causes a lot of consternation among the team about making that joke. And we get to see her choose not to just be the funny one at that moment, to go Mm -hmm. and apologize, to try to make it right in a way that's very mature, in a way that, uh, as somebody who works with a lot of teenagers, not all (laughs) teenagers would do, right? That The way that she handles the situation where she clearly makes a joke that was over the line is on the upper echelons of maturity for the age, I think. Mm -hmm. And so it's very interesting to watch the funny one who you typically think of as being stupid, bad grades, class clown, also simultaneously be really mature and really articulate. Yeah. Yeah. So you get to see her shatter that. So that's the, that's the level of like playwright and audience, but then character level, you also get to watch the girls, like you said, choose when they're going to lean into sort of socially defined roles, not just like the funny one, but into more things like the class clown, the bully. You know, things that have to do with our social interactions with each other. You get to see the girls either lean into that or lean away from that and try to be something different in everybody else's eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with that. There's there, throughout this play, there are moments like like the one that you described, where someone will like go too far or or wander into area that is that is not just the, the there's like an agreed upon language within this group there's like a, ver, a vernacular that that these girls have decided that they all speak together and occasionally one of them breaks the rules or someone who's unfamiliar with the rules breaks the rules and you get to see the norm get shattered whatever their normal patterns are uh, it it breaks down um in, in some ways, predictably, I'm thinking of, for instance, 46, uh, who who comes into the group um, and and doesn't know the rules. She's from out of town. She's new to the area, and uh, she's trying to make friends with them, but doesn't know what's too far, how to how to gossip, or how to make fun of people. And she just takes it over the line a couple times. One time, uh, the 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 scene I'm thinking of is at the beginning where she uh, makes fun of uh, or, or makes a joke about someone being pregnant, and uh, unbeknownst to her number seven in the group had an uh, abortion earlier on that year Maybe. and or, or yeah just had, used plan b it's it, i don't know i don't know who yeah. to believe really something around that comes that up theme. later on then we learn more kind of about it kind of yep <laughs> and so it's a it's a joke in poor taste in the group that she does not know necessarily about so then there's there's silence silence is used in this play as it was in uh, circle mirror transformation um to, and there's there's and it's of note because the rest of this play is such a uh, fire show of talking the whole time. So whenever they hit a beat of silence, it's super awkward. And uh, what ends up happening is twenty five ends up coming over and correcting her. So that that all happens throughout the play at multiple different times. Yeah, I mean the the, the silence. Interestingly, that you brought up circle mirror transformation because it, it's used as a tool in the same way that circle mirror transformation uses silence as a tool, but really in an opposite way. Whereas circle Mm -hmm. mirror transformation filled the play with silence. And then there are beats of dialogue, which fill up the silence and awkwardness of low context strangers. The wolves fills this play with talking. (laughs) So much talking, all the talking you can imagine. And then more. And I know I said there wasn't a lot of text, but it's because the lines are so short that I said that. The actual right. amount of lines are so many. There's oh, it's so like, much and, talking. And there's like three per page. Let's oh, take Oh yeah. Like okay, so let's take a second and talk about formatting for a minute. 
<laughs> so, so this the yeah, feature one of the features of how the characters interact in the play is that they're all talking over each other and they're often having separate conversations. For the majority of the play, I feel confident in saying something like 66% or more of the play, all nine girls are on stage engaged in a warm-up. There's a warm-up routine they do, then they do other types of warm-ups, passing, uh, they run around the field at different points. But for the I think the vast majority of the play, they're all on the field engaged in some type of warm-up and they're just chatting. And so conversations is happening over here about one thing, uh, like at the very beginning of the play is maybe the most memorable example. One group of girls is talking about, is it a Cambodian? Is that right? I think it, we think it's a Cambodian, um, basically a, a guy who committed genocide in Cambodia. Um, we apologize if we're wrong about that. Um, they're talking about that guy. He's super old now. And should he still be executed? Well, the other half of the girls or the other side of the field, they're talking about like what feminine products they prefer to use and making sort of crass jokes about that as they go, especially number seven, who's known for being crass. Um, so those conversations are happening simultaneously. So yes, Jackson, talk about how it, how it reads, how, how it appears on the page. Yeah, it, it appears in uh, like you columned, <laughs> you did a two column in Word and uh, ran them side by side on the page together, overlapping, um, if that makes sense. So, so you'll be reading one and then you could be going back and forth between the two conversations as you go horizontally down the page. Or the option, you could read vertically twice and get the gist of what's going on in both conversations. I imagine seeing it live, though, as you did, Jacob, it's it it's a little bit easier to follow. I don't know what what was your experience I, in those. Um, I think that so so I saw it first and then read it. So that had some interesting things about it. But I actually think probably I would say it was not as followable in production, sure, only because I could only listen to one thing at a time. And these, these speeches are happening on top of each other. So as I read it for the first time after having seen it, I actually caught snippets of dialogue I did not catch in the performance because I was listening to the other conversation at the time. So if we don't do a ton of talking about what it would be like to produce the script, we like to focus on the script, but if you were to produce this script as a director and as actors as an, and as a production team, there's probably some work you're going to have to do to make sure the audience is listening to the right thing at the right time in terms of, I don't know I mean, if it be volume, in terms of pacing, in terms of energy, um, lighting maybe. There's going to have to be some work done to, even though there's two conversations, there's still important beats in all of those conversations that you're going to have to catch. Yeah, and it's back and forth too. I think I think uh, the the playwriting itself helps you out a little bit. Occasionally, the lines are just like, "Really? Yeah, really? Yeah," that sort of thing. <laughs> so so in those moments, the volume or the focus can shift to the other group that is maybe having a bit more <laughs> uh, plot wise relevant conversation <laughs> at the moment or plot wise relevant lines. Um, so yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, the the other the other interesting as long as we're on formatting uh, is is uh, again unique to reading the play and we like to talk about the the kind of art or the practice of reading the play. This is one that you really need a finger on the character list back at the beginning of the book, um, or maybe even read it twice. That's what I wound up having to do to get the most out of this is just read through it twice. So that you so you, you get used to the characters because all you get is the numbers in in the reading of the play in the in the seeing of the play. I imagine it's much easier to start assigning traits to people um, because it's people and they, they, you know, 
add their own uh, acting and talent to it, and you're able to define things. But on the yes. page, nine yeah, characters yeah. all talking at once would be hard enough to read and keep track of the characters. And then you just change it to the fact that they're just numbers. Right. Yeah. Very difficult. Uh, the huge benefit for me was seeing it because I there are faces now, and so even in my first read through, I was able to say, okay, face. This is that person who was saying those lines. Uh, and I could kind of – I kept them straight that way. Um, but if you're going to read it, reading through twice is probably worthwhile. And the second time it goes a lot faster. Even for me, having already seen it, the first time through is slower than the second time through. Um, let's talk about some of, Jackson, what the content, the actual meat of the play of, of what goes on with this group of teammates, I'd like to save the final week for last or second to last. We'll have to watch our time here because right, that'll, yep. that we'll have, I'll have some thoughts about it, I'm sure. But <laughs> in the first four or five weeks, what what is the play about? Yeah, so I'll I'll give the uh, softball answer, which is oh, it, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I think on a deep level, on a really sim- so simple words, but pretty deep level, it is just a play about these girls, right? You're just spending time with uh, these eight women who uh, nine nine women who are all. Uh, living and 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 living in different contexts and you get to hear all those contexts functionally it's sort of sometimes it's called like fly on the wall realism yeah where Mm -hmm. it's not so much about following a character through a particular story across these locations and different moments of their lives as much as it is about sort of listening to the lives of a group or Mm -hmm. of the room and in this case the room is an indoor warm-up facility for a soccer match stadium yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you get to you get to watch. A, I agree, a pretty realistic, even maybe even naturalistic view of what happens in in soccer practice. For those of you who played soccer, this sort of thing happens. Um, but then, uh, I think functionally underneath the the kind of one plot line that carries through is their love of soccer and where it's taking them. Um, what we're building on in each of these scenes is they're trying, at the beginning, they're trying to remain undefeated, um, which they do for a couple of weeks, I think. For for two weeks, one week, they remain undefeated. Second week, they lose a game. Um, third week, they play again. Fourth week, they uh, are playing and, a and a scout is there. Yeah, yep. I think the tournament is week five, right? Well, I think I that they that right? are in the middle. I think that they are in the middle of a tournament in week four. It is not the tournament they thought. I think that there's a. I, I think that there's another tournament coming up. There's some discussion in week four of like, "Ooh, we just beat those guys, but the next right. one's in thirty, and tomorrow we play this other team." So yep, I, I yep. think that it's a tournament. I agree. Yep. Uh, week four is the tournament. Week three is where a scout is there watching a girl on the other team. And so they're all kind of nervous about that. Um, they're all they're all wanting to get scholarships and go to uh, college and play. A, a number of them are. That's, that's a, a big part of the drama. The goalie, for instance, really wants one. The captain really wants one. Seven and 14 talk about it a lot. All of them talk about it a lot. Um, and they're so all nervous when they hear the scouts are coming and they're all talking about how several weeks from now there's like a major tournament where right. they know that a bunch of college scouts will be there. So they're sort of preparing for that. So uh, that comes up 
throughout the course of the weeks, this sort of question of how good are we really as individual players? Is a college going to want us? How do we email coaches? How mm-hmm. do we actually engage with co- with scouts when they arrive? Things like right. that. Yeah, so so on a, on a meta scale, that is a plot that is building throughout. Um, what else? What else do you think, So Jacob? 7 and 14 kind of have a... I don't know if I'd call it a separate plot, but a plot that mostly involves the two of them until it doesn't. Um, And that is that Seven's birthday is coming up. And and the first week, it's like the birthday is is going to be in a couple weeks. Um, And then each week, it gets closer. And we learn over the course of several weeks that the plan is for Seven and Fourteen to go to Seven's dad's ski house alone with a bunch of alcohol and Seven's college boyfriend and his college friend. Mm-hmm. And the four of them are going to hang out. Now, I do think that right away, 14 doesn't know that even the boyfriend is going to be there. She thinks this is just a getaway for them uh, yeah. as friends. And then she learns, oh, the boyfriend's going to be there. Oh, he's bringing a friend. And she sort of starts to anticipate are you just going to leave me alone with a guy that I don't know? We're right. going to go skiing and then I'm going to get left alone with this guy. And mm-hmm. that, and then between, I believe, weeks three and four, the event happens. And when they return, they are no longer friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> Other things have happened, which I'm sure we'll need to talk about because they become pretty major. But just in terms of their friendship, they are very much fighting and it's because what 14 worried would happen happened. Seven left her alone, and 14 apparently was pressured into having some sexual encounters with this other college guy that she was not comfortable with. And so she felt really abandoned and, and in a really tough situation. And Seven feels like, oh, you ruined the weekend that I was supposed to have this special weekend, my birthday weekend, with my boyfriend who I never see. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that severely disrupts their relationship. They're definitely each other's wingmen through um, through the first two scenes of the play. Um, whenever one of them storms off, the other one goes off to get the other one. And, uh, and so, but that definitely is a catalyst that separates them because they are, they are really, they're really tight throughout the first part of the play. And uh, I, so, so that begins to devolve in that scene. The other thing that is connected to Seven especially is Seven is the team striker. And between uh, scenes or week three and four, uh, in week three, she was replaced as striker by number 46, the new girl. Right. So week, so all, all of these weeks are before a game, right? It's the warm up before a game. And so in week three, they're preparing to play a game. There's lots of things going on. One of the other things that goes on is that seven and 25, the team captain, have a lot of tense moments where because yeah. of Seven's, I don't know, temper or just right. personality, grading personality, they end up <laughs> yeah. getting in fights a couple of times. One of the weeks, 25 just makes her go off and run laps and 14 goes with her because they're a pair. Uh, but then week three, they get in a fight and some of what happens is that they drive off number 46, who's the new girl, by making fun of her. Um, she is kind of an odd duck. She lives out in a yurt, which is like a, you know, a fancy tent, 
a more permanent tent, basically, um, <laughs> yep. in the woods. And she has moved from around the globe. She doesn't. She calls soccer football. She's never played on a team before. So they end up making fun of her about something that drives her off crying. 25 goes off with her. And in a previous week, 46 has asked to play striker. And the captain has said, look, we're undefeated. Number seven's our striker. You're not going to play striker. You're new. We don't know anything about you. Blah, blah, blah. So week three happens. The big fight happens. Um, 46 and 25 come back and they're about to play the game. And the captain and seven who don't always get along, the captain is assigning things and says, and 46 is going to play striker. So seven gets benched and must be brought in later in the game because what do we learn happen in that game that we don't see? We learn this in week four about what happened in week three. Yeah, well, first of all, they managed to win the game against a team that they know is very good. But second of all, Seven had a rough game. She made a tackle, like a sliding side tackle or something. And uh, it was it was kind of rough. And she continued to play on her kind of sprained ankle, I believe, is what she got from that part of it. Um, and then, so, uh, so and, that and before was... Before we move on on the injury, they won the game because why? Oh, well, because of uh, 46's incredible because game. 46 yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Apparently yep. she's amazing. She did like a bicycle kick. and <laughs> She's an incredible soccer player. And we learn in week four as they start to ask her about it. Well, it's because she's never played on a formal organized team, but she's played soccer around the world. Her yeah, mother her is, mom a, is travel a travel writer. blog. Yeah, yeah. Her mom, yeah, her mom, her mom blogs, and so she. It's a way that she makes friends with with people around the world as she plays soccer with them. Yeah, so 46 is awesome. And so part of what happens in week four is everybody celebrating they beat this great team and saying, whoa, 46, you're so stinking good. Holy cow, how did you get so good? And oh, seven arrives on crutches. And we learn that she's torn her ACL. And one of the things that Sarah Delap does incredibly well is just give you little bits of information. So first, I think first we learn that she tore her ACL, basically. And then we start to learn more details like... It happened due to a sliding tackle, and she continued to play on her injured leg even when the captain told her not to. We also know from the previous week that they didn't stretch. The captain, uh, the 25, is a really tense person, really takes things very seriously, and they lost the game before. So she's all wound up and is working them really hard, and then they don't have time to stretch. So seven, before the game in week three, says, well, we got to stretch, captain. We got to stretch, captain. says, no time, no time. And they go play. So then the next week, the captain says, well, you shouldn't have played on that leg. I told you not to. And Seven says, well, you should have had a stretch. I told you we needed to stretch. Right. But then what's the next piece of information <laughs> we learned, another Jackson? Piece of, yeah. So in, in the fight between Seven and 14, um, 14 uh, <laughs> brings up that she went and skied on her sprained ankle during the trip. <laughs> So, so not so only the, did she play the rest of the game on a hurt leg, right? she then went and skied on her hurt leg uh-huh. and somewhere in there tore her ACL. No real idea when, due to what I think I know about torn ACLs, it has to have been near the skiing, right? Oh, There's absolutely. no way she could have played a game and then skied on a torn ACL, right? No, 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 no. She she does mention in the scene before the game in week three that her ACL is acting up. She asks to borrow, like, wraps from the goalie, um, but she still plays on it. You can't play on a torn ACL. That's what I think, too. Certainly, the <laughs> yeah, the event that actually tore her ACL happened while she was skiing, in my opinion. Yeah, so 
that's one of the things that occurs throughout the play is that the team has to deal with injury and how do they deal with it. In week four, a scout comes to watch them play and the scout invites over three girls. The goalie, who's a really good goalie, we learned that throughout. Number 46, who we've said is new but apparently is incredible. And number 14, number seven sidekick. And that's got to be in a special rub in 14's face after their fight. The goal, the scout brings them over, and that happens off stage, And we get to see all the other girls basically watch these right. three girls talk to the scout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that is adds some interesting drama. Twenty or the goalie number zero um, has been a character of some note throughout. She always gets really wound up right before the game starts and runs off. And it's it's I think it's two weeks before forty six asks what's going on, but uh, uh, apparently she has a bit of a nervous condition and always throws up before the game. Well, actually, so- yeah, and when you read the character description, it says she has social performance anxiety or. Or it's actually social anxiety disorder because mm-hmm. the girls call it being sad, S-A-D, social right, anxiety right. disorder. So she has issues with performing in front of people. And we learn later in the play about how she's always visualizing what she's going to do wrong. And so before right. every game, she runs off to throw up. So yep. one of the comic moments of the play, she's <laughs> off talking to this scout with these two other girls. And the rest of the girls left on the field are like, oh, she's going to throw up. She's, she's going to throw, throw up. Oh, watch her, watch her. Oh, she's going to throw Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and uh, one of the really, really funny moments, she doesn't throw up. She comes back from talking with the scout. And then as soon as basically she hits the group of girls – she sprints off <laughs> yep. to go throw up in a different part of the field, and one of the girls goes, "There she blows." Right. <laughs> yep, yep. So yeah, that so that that scene especially, there's a whole bunch going on. A lot of things have come to a head. A bunch of different plot lines are are all materializing. And uh, what's the scene after that one? We're we're getting along to the point where we can start talking about the end of the play, but there is a there is a uh, beat between for. Well, I, I don't think we can get to the beat between without revealing what happens at the end. I don't think, and okay. we still have a few more things to discuss. Um, if you want to talk about Jackson, what is going on with number eleven and her parents? One of the running conflicts about how the girls think about her mother, especially. Uh, I can talk about number two. And so what's going on with number two is a pretty unspoken issue. And it, we don't ever learn much about it except what we as the audience observe in that kind of fly on the wall uh, world. And what we observe is probably, again, it's unsaid, probably number two has some kind of an eating disorder. Uh, the girls right away talk about how thin she is and she has a really visceral reaction to that. No, I'm not. I'm not thin. I'm not thin. She is constantly talking about some medical problem or other that she's having. Um, One of the notable, memorable features of the play is the very first conversations, like I've said. And the half of the girls are talking about the Cambodian guy and the other half of the girls I mentioned before, they're talking about feminine products. They get on that because they start talking about being teenage girls and masturbating. And again, so this is of course what, one of the reasons why the play has gotten into such note is that it, you know, treats teenage girls, these young women as real people instead of these sort of porcelain dolls, like a lot of media does. Um, and so the girls are talking about that. And number two has been having some medical issues, I guess, with that feature throughout the play. She's having concussions, nosebleeds. So she's got some medical problems, probably again, unsaid, 
probably which are related to the fact that she has an eating disorder. She describes what she eats a few times, and it's not much. Basically, peanut butter and cheese is what she says. There's a scene where somebody brings on a bag of oranges, which is full of nostalgia for all of us who played sports as youngsters. (laughs) (laughs) When I was a youngster playing sports and we got bags of oranges, it was great. It's one of the highlights of being in sports. Put the orange peels in your mouth and they do that. Yep. They put the orange peels in their mouth and they eat them. Uh, and number two, once everybody else has left to go play the game, number two is left with a bag of oranges. And the stage directions are, and then as I saw in the production, she drops to the ground and just starts shoveling orange after orange into her mouth. Um, so th- the clues all start to piece together that she has some kind of an other probably undiagnosed eating disorder, uh, which is – fairly concerning uh but we don't ever get any i I don't think resolution or understanding of what happens in that situation and the reason why is something we need to get to here as as jackson said we need to move to the last scene um number 11 has some things going on with the way that girls think about her parents yeah her parents are both uh psychologists and uh or 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 therapists um they they uh so (laughs) So it, this whole play is filled with gossip about each other, and uh, the the as the, you can imagine, as you can imagine, um, and the way we find out about uh, Eleven's mother is they all refer to her as like the hot therapist. She has like uh, a really nice haircut, they say, and uh, smoking and she, hot bod. Yeah, That's exactly. Number thirteen, the funny one, if you can't tell. Right, right. And then 13 talks about her brother, right? Her brother who lives in their basement, who is a, <laughs> a drug dealer and needs a therapist and she claims that uh, he is he's banging her mom <laughs> um, and so <laughs> in jest in, in jest, jest. I don't it, think I we're mean, meant to believe that no no not really but it is thrown around and it bugs Eleven Eleven right. is not comfortable with this joke it's one of the moments where one of the jokes go too far and, and uh, remember that number 11 is you know quote unquote the smart one in Jacob's right. Far too the, the, simplistic character descriptions. <laughs> yeah, the, the budding intellectualist, um, and uh, and and as we find out later, uh, she she's trying to talk. When we get to the last scene, she is trying to unpack some of the 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 the, the damage and the horror that has been done to the group um, in the last scene, and she's trying to talk to her dad about it, and it kind of comes up again, very kind of comically in this slow drop of information. It's like the characters ask her, wait, wait, why can't you talk to your dad about it? And she's like, oh, well, he's a therapist too. And it feels like that I can't really talk to him. It's just my dad, which uh, so both of her parents are therapists. She's having a hard time um, being with them. The other mention we get is uh, that uh, she's, you know, wanting to get out of the tyranny of family dinners. So there's some there's some family conflict, family strife, especially with the fact that both her parents are therapists. And that, can, as you can imagine, would be very difficult That'd as a teenage difficult. person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can't even it's... fathom. Um, number 25 has a, kind of one of her running things is that she uh, is interested in women, whether she's a lesbian or bisexual or some other. I, I don't know. We don't. We never learn that. But we do know that she is interested in women. That's one of the plots that kind of does get resolved. Um, we see in the end that she does end up kind of dating this girl that she's been sort of thinking about dating throughout the play. So uh, that's 25. The only two characters we haven't really talked about having a running plot are number eight and number 13. And as I was preparing for this, I was trying to think through what they might have going on, and I really couldn't come up with much. Their journey is a little weird. Yeah, the 
Eight kind of chimes in. She's the childlike one and determined to stay that way. Um, she she kind of chimes in as sometimes the voice of innocence within it, but like conscious innocence, like trying to be that way. Um, Thirteen, I think, has a bit more of an aggressive storyline. There there might be some, she she chimes in quite a bit. There might be some allusion to her connection to the coach, but it's really really kind of sidelined. She knows a lot about who the who uh, when the scouts are coming and stuff like that. Yeah, and we'll, that's true. That's interesting. Yeah. I never thought about that. That's weird. Yeah, the coach in general is this weird character. Oh, yeah, who's we like, didn't even mention the coach. So what <laughs> yeah. what's going on with their coach, Jackson? The that's coach one is of the completely big lines. yeah. He's off stage the whole time. He's kind of like they, they they call him like he's always hung over. He's wearing sunglasses. He makes them they they say he makes them train in their bras at one point. And so he's this he's like this this perv coach pretty much. Yeah, dirtbag. Uh-huh. He's a terrible coach. He doesn't really coach them. They end right. up coaching themselves basically. And one of the things that they sort of discover as a group or think through as a group throughout the play is that that's really sexist. Apparently the boys team has an amazing coach who's played professionally and is this awesome. They all want that coach, and it's sexist that they ended up with this crappy coach, and they used to have a good coach, but then that good coach had to go be with his mother who's dying. So right. one at one point where the jokes get uh, too, go too far, they accuse somebody of like wanting his the co- old coach's mother to die in yeah. order that he could yep. come back. So that's definitely one of the running points. So... There's lots of that that goes on yep. for four of the six weeks. Mm-hmm. And we follow it. And man, as I was watching it, and both times I was reading it, I had the same reaction. I was enthralled for four weeks, four scenes of <laughs> yeah. these teenage girls, just so much talking and trying to follow the conversations and these really interesting, intricate character-based plots. What are these real multidimensional people going through? How are they going through it? How are they pushing against each other to jockey their social standing? How are they trying to make each make themselves appear in each other's eyes? It's enthralling. It's yep. capturing. I'm so on board. And then... Then, at the end of week, week four ends with a basically a big fight. Again, seven and 14 have a lot going on. It's revealed that number 14 has told the group about number seven's maybe abortion. So, and number seven's injured. Number 46 is really good, which has pissed a lot of the team off. It ends with a large fight that kind of ends at that point. Everybody's screaming at each other. Number eight. Uh, Two, I think, runs on with a bunch of oranges. Right. And that's yep. the line that freezes. The scene ends in the middle of that fight. Nothing else continues. Just the middle of the fight, blackout. And then what happens? Yeah. Then it's a really weird scene that breaks the norm of weird as in just abnormal for this play. Um, it's a scene with just the goalie, Zero. Um, she is on the field by herself. She's face down in the middle of the she- of the field and completely empty gymnasium, and she sits up. She's clearly been crying. She starts dumping out all these soccer balls and kicking them off stage, and uh, she tears off her shirt and kneels on the field holding her shirt. And it, this is not... It, it, it's not so off-putting that this happens because, again, we know the goalie, Double Zero, has intense performance anxiety disorder. We know that she really struggles with that. She's very anxious. Uh, so watching her 
be really anxious, be uh, really physical and aggressive and wear herself out and be exhausted didn't, at least when I saw it, so then I had the benefit of seeing it and both times I read it, it didn't strike me too much as like, whoa, what is this character doing? You know, it's not like we saw number 13 do that, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> or number 11 do that. It was, it's the person that's with that, with that you would expect that kind of uh, super anxious panic attack-like behavior from. But it does break the norm of having anybody else involved and mm-hmm. being a warm-up for a game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then that's called the timeout scene. It's not placed in a week. The other weeks are named by weeks, one, two, three, four. Then the timeout. And then we skip to week six. This is probably not something you would notice when you saw it. I didn't notice the weeks had skipped really until I read the script. And in week six, the girls start to show up one by one, and they're not really sure if everybody's going to be there. The, the running question for the first portion of it is, will we have enough people to play? And, oh, we had to forfeit last week, a week that we didn't get to see. That's the first real hint that we've skipped a week other than the titles of the scenes. What else? Yeah, um, s- slowly uh, they all begin to trickle in. They start uh, kind of they they talk about the last week. They talk about uh, being sick for a while, and then someone else will join, and they will talk about what happened in the week off. And it's been really weird. Some of them are starting to say um, that they've been crying a lot, and they're not really sure what's going on. Uh, Eleven is the, one of the ones who shows up pretty early, and she's talking about trying to talk to her dad about it. That it's all he wants to talk about, and. Uh, uh, and they're not really naming what it is yet. They keep using pretty general terms. She keeps saying, like, I, ju- I just want to talk to my dad about it. I don't want to talk to a therapist about it. I'm learning to drive, she says. So time has passed. She has her uh, driver's permit. So she's driving yeah. with her parents. We get then a mention of a service, that there has been a service. And right away, it's a service. We all go, crap. Somebody died. Somebody's died in some time that... We didn't know we, – we weren't part of the lives of these women. And so now we have, we've caught up now and someone has died and it's been a pretty short amount of time. We learn then a couple more details as a few more girls show up. She shouldn't have been wearing headphones. We get a mention of the name Alex. Is Alex okay? But we don't know who Alex is yet. And, w- and one of the – basically what happens for me is that – the audience engagement with the scene ends up being who's alive. <laughs> right. Right? It becomes yeah. a game of who's left. Mm-hmm. As, As the girls show up. One by one. Yeah, you figure out very early, you know, within the first couple pages of the scene that there somebody has died. Somebody on the team. It caused them to forfeit the previous game. We don't know much of details. We know it had something to do with headphones, something to do with a car accident because the guy who hit her didn't defrost his windshield. And so then you just start to play detective. Who's coming in? Who is still alive? We get all the girls in. They're all talking about how hard it's been. Number 25 comes in and she shaved her head. The goalie comes in and notably is talking. She doesn't talk pretty much throughout the whole play. She has only a few lines, but now she's talking because her anxiety is cured, I guess, by something that has happened in the meantime. Mm-hmm. At least for now. <laughs> At least for now. Yeah. And then all the girls but two have arrived and who are the two that are not have not yet arrived jackson seven and 14 so it's one of them yep seven and 14 the girls in this big fight the best friends really some of the more striking followable characters 
in the show. They have a really clear through line. They have a lot of energy in their line, you know, just in the way that they're written because they're both so aggressive and they swear so much and they dominate the conversation so much. Two of the more identifiable, followable characters, they haven't arrived. Who is it? What's going to happen? And who is it, Jackson? Well, Seven hobbles in onto the field. On her crutches. And man, when I saw it, I just had the wind knocked out of me. Hmm. Yeah. And and we know it's coming. I know somebody died. I know that right. somebody was going to be left off the field. <laughs> right. But something about seven hobbling on and going, oh, yep. 14 is dead. Mm-hmm. She's dead. Yeah, you slowly figure it out. And then boom. And how did she you. die, Jackson? What do we learn from the girls? Well, it's, I mean, again, you're piecing together stuff. So I imagine there's some room, but uh, we know that she was on a run, that it was a very early run, that she went on a run with headphones, and that someone should have defrosted their window. So with that, I think we can all assume that she was hit by a car on an early morning run that she didn't hear the car coming. The car didn't see her and she died. Yep. And Mm -hmm. uh, then the, the 10th character finally appears in this final scene. It's just called soccer mom, but we learn that it's number 14's mother and she come on and has kind of this frantic, desperate, grief-ridden monologue. She's here to support... The the girls are finally going to play a game again. They've missed at least one week of soccer games. So everybody's coming to watch them after this tragedy. All their friends and family are showing up. They can see them in the stands. Number 25's new girlfriend is there. Number 7's college boyfriend has taken some time off school to come support her. Certain people's parents are there. there. The good coach is back, (laughs) and he's there. Everybody's there. And number 14's mom comes and says, well, I had to come too. And she has just a painful, and not badly written, painful emotionally. Yeah. Painful, painful monologue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just completely born out of grief. She's processing the death of her daughter still. She brings up kind of their last conversation or uh, or something like that, or the last full conversation they had. Um and she's like telling she she'll switch out of that into like okay go out and get a win don't 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 not like yeah, that come last on, week girls, where you it's time lost. to get a win don't don't lose play smart play good yep. soccer oh remember the swear jar that i had or this like jar the that like I had jar, for the yeah. girls because they always said like oh you remember it alex don't you and she names alex so we learned that number 7's name is alex yep um yep. and eventually she says oh i've forgotten something i've forgotten something and she runs off forgot she it in my trunk oranges. i'll be right back yeah yeah and the play ends with the girls all coming together and doing a chant. One other time they've done their team chant, we are the wolves, we are the wolves, we are the wolves, we are the wolves. And they sort of chant it into sort of a, uh, the, I think the stage directions say like a bacchaic right. uh, ecstasy in, in the more pure emotional sense. Um, loud, emotional, cathartic, we are the wolves. And the soccer mom runs on with oranges, blackout. End of play. Huh. Yeah. (laughs) Here, that is very odd to me to to end the play with this scene. It is utterly unconnected to the rest of the story. Do you agree? I I would absolutely agree. I mean, the ending in general is, but especially the soccer mom is. Um, well, I mean I, the whole last scene. The whole, the whole last week scene six. Is, 
Yeah. I mean, it has, it's so odd. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with, like I said, the story that I have been following <laughs> with yeah. joy. Mm-hmm. I mean, weeks one through four, I have found so interesting. Right, I'm right. so engaged in the lives and learning about all these different people and what's going on. And then all of it comes to naught. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll I, I can I can speak into that a little bit because I think that is the naturalistic part of this play. Like I, for anyone who lost a friend in the high school years, it feels like a meteor comes out of nowhere, right? Like you all you're, you're going through weeks and you're just doing your stuff and you're rolling along and things that are tiny in the grand scale feel like they're huge things. Huge things feel like they're even huger things, and then all of a sudden, you lose a friend. And it comes out of nowhere. And then, boom, you are forced to grapple with it. And Yeah, I, I mean, I remember when I was in high school or yeah. maybe middle school and a kid from our youth group died. And it was, I was, we were at a youth group event. I was like washing cars for a fundraiser and my mother came to pick me up early. And as mm-hmm. we were driving home, she said, did you know this kid? Yeah, I did. We were pretty good friends. Oh, well, he, he died. And yeah. it's just out of the blue. Every, you know, suddenly everything was different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it completely changes everything. And then, I mean, we don't get to see that moment, but we see the week later and everyone has is somewhat different. Um, yeah, nothing is the same. Yeah, yep. And some of it is physical changes, like 25's haircut. Some of it is relational changes. Um, some of it is just the fact that they missed each other. Like 46, was, she says she's basically been alone in her yurt for for two weeks and is so glad to see everyone again. Um so so as far as that goes, that feels very naturalistic to me. That feels like like it does say that this play is basically about that last scene. It puts a lot of weight on that, right? Like Right. And and that's where I, I struggle because I think that both I'm gonna say both plays have <laughs> have uh, some emotional resonance and poignancy. The first four weeks as their own play, like I said, I loved. The last week, I think, has struggles a little bit with its poignancy because it, there's not enough built to it. It's very out of the blue, and then we don't spend a lot of time in it. But it has its own kind of resonance. But they don't connect. The sound that I'm making is my <laughs> hands slapping together, trying to emphasize they don't connect. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that I mean that's that's a valid argument. Um and I and I don't think anything beyond just the the uh you know the complete randomness of of life in high school can justify it, right? Like I I totally agree. There does yeah. not seem to be for me another reasonable interpretation of the play as it is written other than this diatribe about random tragedy. Right. Yeah. And man, at the end of my 90 minutes, I feel like all I've walked out with is the sense that random tragedy can strike at any moment. And it's like, why did I invest my 90 minutes in learning that? Well, I mean, I, I had like, when I saw it, I was distraught. 
yeah. at the end of the play. And not because the end of the play was so emotional for me that they had lost this friend. Like I said, the moment where you learn who it is was very uh, emotional for me. But the chanting together, that didn't ha- that didn't mean a whole lot to me personally. But to Brianne, my wife, who saw it and had been on a soccer team, it meant a lot. So that's some of it was just me. But what I was distraught about was the sense that like all the investment that I had given to these characters was wasted. Right. <laughs> None of it comes to anything. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not deus machina, right? Because the characters aren't rescued from anything by the will of God. But I think th- what, what the linchpin of this for me is that the death is due to random accident. And because the death is due to random accident, it becomes almost deus machina. It's almost as if the playwright was rescued from having to resolve all of the (laughs) drama that she had built by random accident. Uh Because I think the end of the play would have read differently if, look, week four ends, seven and 14 are in a huge argument. 14 may or may not have been sexually abused. All this crap is going on. They have a terrible coach. It's all, you know, all of this stuff. And we learn two weeks later that 14 killed herself due to all of this stuff. I, th- I mean, for me, that ties things together a little bit. It says that what you're seeing at the end is a result. It's the next step of what you have seen so far. Rather than just a leap off a cliff, <laughs> a random hole in the ground that you fell in. Right. <laughs> I'll I'll approach that with some some uh, <laughs> some dramatic criticism. Um, I, I think what you're describing is a play with a linear t- plot scru- structure, um, which is where you know the play builds to something, something happens, we see the aftermath, and maybe yes or no end with uh, a, some sort of resolution at the end. I think this play is episodic, and we don't get that. Um, this is a bunch of scenes of people's real lives and it's not worried about coming at you with a moral at the end or and everything is fine at the end or and everything is awful at the end. It's just everything is. And I I don't disagree with you, but but allow me to push (laughs) back a little bit here because I have read and love many plays like that. In some ways, Circled Mirror Transformation is like that, right? Oh, absolutely. It's a series of stories that are all... Uh, about the same characters at different points. It's very episodic, right? If this play is episodic, though, (laughs) it's only got two episodes. Right. Because the first four weeks, I mean, they are, they take place a week apart, but it's not really episodic. It's about the same stuff week to week. We follow these characters on a journey. Mm Mm-hmm. It, it is very linear. We watch the characters, right? 7 and 14. Well, the party is coming up. Okay, next week is the party. Did you bring your stuff? Okay, oh, now here's what happened after the party, right? We follow that story on a trajectory, on a linear trajectory from point A to point B. Yep. And then we have an entirely other episode. <laughs> You can tell that I'm very passionate about this because I love the first four weeks of this play and I'm just, I'm, I'm very depressed (laughs) that I don't get, I don't get any return on my engagement. (laughs) And maybe that's the point. Like you said, maybe it's about random tragedy and some of the, some of the, 
some of what the audience begins to feel as a collective is what it's like to be a teenager and lose your friend and feel like you don't get any return on the investment you've made over weeks of friendship and practice. And I mean, that that's certainly an interesting look at what the play might be about at a deeper level. But mm-hmm. man... If that's what this play is about, <laughs> I want my 90 minutes back. It's a I've tough had one. a life. I've had a life already. You know? <laughs> and people older than me have got to have way more random tragedy in their life than I've had. And I've had some in my life. <laughs> but sometimes it's good to remember, though. I think this play oh. deals in in some level of nostalgia as yeah, well. Yes, um, it does. So I think it's a reminder to people. It, it it rings a chord true the same way that circle mirror transformation rung true for theater people. This rings true for athletic people and people who grew up playing sports and doing theater. Like it's not at the exclusion of it. Obviously, if you're watching a play, you probably like theater. Um, but a lot of people still played in sports, and there's there's there is that nostalgia part of it as well. That kind of resonating within this play and the situation as well. I think I think I I ultimately do agree with you. On your on your remarks, I think mine are located specifically on the soccer mom, though. Um, I I want I wonder about the inclusion of that character. Um, certainly, it gives you the full context of what happened. You see, you find out a lot of things. Um, you know for sure, like the 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 kind of rending that has happened in the community and the beat of the oranges is a nice moment. But I could I could end the play with them building with we are the wolves and i would be pretty happy at the end of that scene but that's just my opinion structurally dramatically the soccer mom serves as a stand-in for number 14 right it's a way to sort of emphasize the absence by saying look at what this outsider that isn't number 14 but knows her and knows us brings to the group um, dynamic in her place and how how unsuccessful it is how grief-ridden and frantic it, it ends up seeming. And it, it's, it emphasizes the loss of the human by a failed replacement, I think. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> there's, a, there's a spectacular moment of foreshadowing early in the play, Jackson. I only caught it my third time after seeing it and reading it twice. There's a moment where the girls are involved in something and not number 14. And they actually mention it in the last scene of the play. It's the orange slice picture. The girls all put orange slices in their mouths and 14 takes the picture and is left out of the team picture. And then they mention it at the end. And I didn't really know what they were talking about until the third time reading and I finally got it. In the last scene, the girls say, I keep looking at that picture with the orange slices and it's so weird. It's so, I can't can't do it. It freaks me out. And at first I thought it was like, oh, it's because they see number 14 in a picture. Maybe this is the last picture they took together or something. But the third time through, I finally got it. I was like, oh, she's not in the picture. Right, she took the picture because her weird yeah wow yeah that's 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 poignant right there yeah that that was interesting (laughs) to me and so that's that's a tie right there's some dramatic connection there i think one thing i wish might have been built in to help me bridge this gap i wish that number 14 had been known to wear headphones sure you know something that makes it seem a little bit less random like oh 
she wears <laughs> headphones a lot and everybody's telling her that's dangerous. And then that, you know, that and that pays off later on. Or right, right. Maybe when the girls are on the run in the snow that they talk about, somebody doesn't defrost their windshield and almost hits them. Or, mm-hmm. And all of that to the really smart theater people in the world might seem really dumb. Like, that's too <laughs> obvious. And it might be too obvious. That's probably bringing a hammer to this very finely crafted glass right. sculpture. But Just want I some just, order in the universe. I just am searching for some <laughs> payoff to my investment of time and energy and emotional. Ah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, clearly this last scene wrecked both Jacob and I in some different ways. <laughs> and we got to pitch the question to you at this point. How how was your experience, either reading or watching or being in this play? Um, this, this play, as we've mentioned, pulls on heartstrings. There's a lot of... You're, wrapped up in the energy of this play and it's not a play that you can walk away without feeling something i feel like like you you will feel something during this play so we'd love to keep having this conversation with you so find us on facebook instagram or twitter or gmail no script podcast at gmail.com no script podcast is the username for all the aforementioned social medias reach out on there uh leave a comment or just write on the wall and we'd love to keep having the conversation with you reading plays can be a lonely pursuit at times and we are here to speak with you about these things. Yes, if you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, please share the episode on your social media. Besides contributing on Patreon, which is the best way you can help us, sharing this episode is the second best way you can help us. Tell other people about No Script. If you like scripts, that's why you're here, then you know people who like scripts. So tell the world about No Script Podcast so we can keep growing our community. We've been blessed with the listenership we have, and we hope to keep growing that listenership as we move forward. You can find our podcast on Podcast. Bean, where it's hosted on Google Play, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link to a new episode is always posted on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram every Monday when we release. Monday, Monday. And until next Monday, when we're coming at you with another script, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.